Welcome to the River Fellowship Podcast. At River Fellowship, we desire to experience God, exalt Christ, embrace community, and engage the world. This week, Lead Pastor Daryl Anderson continues his series titled Real with Part 6, Real Passion. What we put on a pedestal indicates what we are passionate about. Passion is great, but misdirected passion can create problems in your life as well as in the church. So let's check what is on the pedestal. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org. We're continuing our series uh, entitled Real. And we're just looking at a real church that has some real issues, some real problems um, that Paul addresses. But then we're trying to make application of how that can really speak to us. We're going to start in chapter 1 this morning. I want to talk specifically about real passion. Now, to get there, we're going to first talk about some real problems that the church in Corinth is experiencing. But hopefully, as we weave through here, the main thing I'm going to want to leave with you here in a moment is the concept of real passion. What is it about and, and where should it be placed? But to do that, for a visual, to help us visualize what we're going to talk about, I've got this pedestal here. Now, we know when you put stuff on a pedestal, you're putting things on the pedestal that are front and center, that are very important to you that you want people to focus on, has great value. Okay, this, 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 is, this is it. So we put it on a pedestal. So as we walk through the process, I want you to visualize this concept of pedestal as we see what the Corinthians are doing. Because one thing that's happened with the Corinthians, the, the believers there, is they've put the wrong things on the pedestal. They're focusing on the wrong things. They value and think certain things are important that really aren't as important as they have dictated. Two things very specifically. The first thing is what I'm going to identify as talking heads. Now, unfortunately, that's a non-talking head. But more specifically, teachers. They put certain teachers up on the pedestal. We see this in chapter 1. We pick it up in verse 10. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another, so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. What we see in this first problem with the Corinthians is there's a lot of division and disunity and quarreling and fighting and bickering, and partly it's because of putting teachers on the pedestal and following them and their teaching as most important. It says some were following Paul. Now, Paul was the one that founded the church. He was there probably a year and a half, uh, at least on that first visit. So he led several people to Christ. So you can understand someone that's been led to Christ by Paul and been discipled and mentored by Paul, obviously they're going to have a strong loyalty to Paul. But he had others then that came into the church after Paul was kind of off the scene, so they didn't know Paul like that. All they really knew about Paul was some of the letters that he wrote, some being really harsh. So they had kind of a different opinion maybe about Paul. Also, they mentioned Apollos. And Apollos, we know from Acts 18, um, was a well-educated man. He was, had thorough knowledge of the Scripture. Um, he was um, a great orator, a great speaker. 
which really appealed to the Greeks because they placed very high the ability to speak and to orate. And so the, these Greeks would connect with Apollos. And probably Paul, Apollos was, uh, uh, had some charisma, had a, probably a pretty strong personality. So people connected to that personality. The third one here is Cephas, which is Peter. And we know that Peter uh, became the apostle to the Jews. So you had Jews in the church at Corinth, and they connected with Peter because there was still that Jewish heritage and that Jewish background and maybe still some Jewish practices that they connected with one another. So they had a real loyalty to Cephas. Then you had those that said, I follow Christ. Now, on the surface, that sounds really holy and good, doesn't it? But I think in the context, it's something a little bit different. I think these were the holier-than-thou people. These were the ones thinking that they're really spiritual, and they're saying, I don't listen to Paul or Cephas. or I, listen, I'm just, I just listen to Jesus, it's, and it's a spirit, really, of arrogance in this context. So what we see here is because of the loyalty to these men and teachers, they've placed them on the pedestal, and because of that, there's some real problems. There's some real division and quarreling taking place. Well, they also made the mistake by putting something else on the pedestal, and we're just going to say gift. They put a spiritual gift on the pedestal. We see this in chapter 12. And it wasn't just any gift. It was a very specific gift. They had placed the gift of tongues up on this pedestal as a very primary gift. And let me give some context here before we get in chapter 12. We have two letters from Paul, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, that he wrote to the Corinthian church. But in actuality, Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. Two of those letters, if most of the information has kind of gotten lost, uh, scholars think some of them may have kind of oozed into one of the, the two books that we have. But evidently, one of those books that we don't have, one of those letters we don't have was a pretty harsh, pretty stern letter to the Corinthians. But also, the Corinthian believers wrote a letter to Paul. We see this in chapter 7, verse 1, when Paul says, Now for the matters you wrote about. So evidently, some members of the church wrote to Paul about what's going on in the Corinthian church. And we don't know specifically who that was. In my mind, I'm thinking it's probably people that see the division, see the problems, see the disunity, see the quarreling, see the abuse, and they're concerned about what's going on in the church. So they write all this stuff down and say, hey, Paul, would you address this stuff? And they send a letter to Paul. So probably most of the stuff we read from chapter 7 on, much of that is probably... Paul responding to these questions that these members have. One of those questions dealt with spiritual gifts and specifically the gift of speaking in tongues. What we see as Paul writing, is writing is there's a, a real ignorance, there's a real confusion about these gifts, and that blossomed into an abuse and some real, into some real problems. So Paul addresses this. He, he addresses it in chapter 12, verse 1. He says, now about spiritual gifts, brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant. They've placed tongues at this greatest, most important level. They've attached spiritual maturity to the gift of tongues. They're emphasizing the gift of tongues so much that they are devaluing all of the other gifts. They are demeaning people that don't have that one gift, and they're demanding that everybody have that one gift. And so Paul addresses that and says, hey, this, that's, that's not the deal. It's interesting to me why speaking in tongues became the gift everybody grafted to. 
why weren't they fighting over the gift of service? <laughs> hey, everybody ought to be serving. That wasn't an issue. It was, it was tongues. I think part of the deal is because in verse 2, he addresses that. He says, you know that when you were pagans, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. I think there was an attachment to the expression of the gift of tongues that reminded many of these believers that stepped out of idolatry and pagan worship that reminded them of their pagan worship because in pagan worship, it was very ecstatic and very uh, frenetic, very uh, wild, just you know, exciting, just kind of crazed. And so when the gift of tongues was operating here in this church, it, it reminded them of that. So they just all latched on to that one very specific gift and it created a lot of problems. So the second issue is they put the wrong thing on the pedestal. They allowed the gift of tongues to become a strong focus and extremely important. So Paul addresses this in some broad strokes. Now, we're not going to get real specific into gifts today, but Paul just in some broad strokes addresses this. The first broad stroke he says is that there are many gifts. There's not just the one. We see that in verse 4 where he says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit. In other words, they thought tongues was the gift and the sign of spiritual maturity. What Paul is saying is, hey, there's a plethora of gifts, and he mentions a lot of those. But all those gifts are from the same Spirit. So they're all spiritual gifts, not just tongues. He expounds on it in verse 29. He says, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? Now, in the Greek, this is the same thing in English that we would call rhetorical questions. The implied answer is no. Paul could have written, are all apostles? No. Do all work miracles? No. Do all speak in tongues? No. But he didn't have to say that because inherent in the statement is the implied answer no. So he's making a big point here is that you don't have all the gifts. Here's, a, here's an important truth to remember. Whatever you believe about spiritual gifts specifically in general, here's something that you can camp out on as truth. That is, no believer has every gift, and no gift is in every believer. Okay? No believer has every gift. But there's no one gift that every believer is supposed to have and function in because he makes it very specific. This is just me kind of doing word pictures, but Paul later addresses the body and, that, and, and we are a body. We all know what the body looks like. We have eyes, we have nose, we have ears, we have fingers, we have elbows and knees and feet. And that's, that's the body. That's a normal body. But to me, the Corinthians have warped the image of the body, because spiritually speaking, to the Corinthian church, the body just was a bunch of tongues. Instead of eyes, there were tongues. Instead of ears, there were tongues. Instead of fingers, there were tongues. Instead of feet, there were tongues. Can you imagine a body that all you have is five billion tongues? That's all you have. That's, what, that's the image of what the Corinthians had done in abusing and twisting this gift. They, they think we're, we're just a bunch of tongues. And Paul's saying, no, we are actually a body, and there are a lot of gifts that help the body, which brings us to a second big point he's trying to make, and that's the gifts are intended for unity, not division. And the Corinthians 
have made the gifts a source of division rather than a source of unity. He says in verse 7, Now to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given. Why? For the common good. Verse 20, As it is, there are many parts, but one body. What he's trying to communicate is we are a body. And an effective, healthy body has all these different parts that work together. Spiritually speaking, it's the same. We have all these different gifts, and they're intended to all come and work together for the benefit and the health of the church. But because they had placed us on the pedestal, they had created some real problems. One other broad stroke that, that Paul gives us uh, is really identified in chapter 14. He takes the gifts of tongues, and he compares it or contrasts it with prophecy. And so he gives us a long discourse of tongues and prophecy. And again, we're not getting into any of this in detail or specifics this morning, but he makes another very broad uh, point. And his point, he he identifies it in verse 5 and then following. He says, when it it comes to a corporate worship environment, when we're coming together, because that's really what he's talking about, the church of Corinth and what's taking place in the corporate worship experiences. So Paul is saying, when you come together corporately in this corporate worship experience, prophecy is much better than tongues. You guys think tongues is the ultimate gift, but in reality, prophecy is more important and a greater gift when you're in the corporate environment. Why? Well, he tells us in verse 9, in chapter 14, he says, unless you speak intelligible words... With your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? Verse 19, he says, But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. What he's trying to communicate is when you come together, part of the purpose is the edification, encouragement, which we talked about last week. If I'm speaking in tongues, I'm not encouraging anyone because nobody understands what I'm saying. So when I come to a corporate gathering, we should be speaking prophecy. Now, he's not talking specifically in detail what this gift of prophecy is. He's, he's using it in a general sense. We would say speak English. When you come together, speak in a way that everybody can understand what you're saying. Because what had happened at Corinth is they thought if you're spiritual, you have to speak in tongues, and God's Spirit's not moving unless you're speaking in tongues. And he's trying to say that's not true. God's Spirit will move when you speak English and you speak intelligible words. The Spirit of God is still speaking, so quit devaluing that gift. That's that's really what he's trying to say in a nutshell. So the big picture of what Paul is saying is, with tongues, it's a gift. It's not the gift. And that's what he tries to communicate. But because of these two things, what we see, because of them putting heads and teachers on a pedestal and this gift on a pedestal, there's a lot of division and disunity and quarreling and bickering and fighting And so Paul says, hey, we need to stop that. And here's the issue. They had become passionate about the wrong things. And here's where we move into talking about real passion this morning. Their passion had shifted off the right thing and shifted to the wrong thing. They were so passionate about what their teachers were saying to them. They were so passionate about the gift of tongues that it it warped everything. So Paul tries to bring them back and say you need to be passionate about the right thing. And that's what I want to 
walk through these last few moments of what does real passion look like. Well, real passion begins when we put the right thing on the pedestal. And that's what real passion is all about. That we are passionate about the thing that we're supposed to be passionate about. In a broad term, it's the cross of Christ. But I want to narrow that down and give you three passion points this morning. Three things that we should really be passionate about. You as an individual, but us as a church. To be sure we can stem from our church becoming divisive and disunified and etc. To maintain the unity that we want to maintain. It'll, it'll, it'll happen with real passion on the right thing. So here's three passion points for you this morning. The first one is to pursue Jesus. Very foundational, very basic. The passion point first and foremost is that we pursue, pursue Jesus. And back in chapter 1, Paul makes this point over and over and over. And he gives us several verses and several examples and several reasons why the main thing, the focal point, the most important, most valuable thing is that we are pursuing Jesus. He tells us in chapter 1, verse 2, he addresses us as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. He reminds us that it's Jesus who's made the difference in our life. Jesus is the one who has made us new and has cleansed us and has justified us. Verse 9, he says that God has called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He's trying to bring us back to say the number one goal and desire is fellowship, to pursue Jesus. It's not pursuing and listening to these teachers. It's pursuing and following Jesus Christ. Verse 13, he asked, was Paul crucified for you? He's just reminding us again that it's Jesus who died on the cross. Verse 24, he says, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Okay, Paul's not the power of God, even though he's a great man. Apollos is not the wisdom of God, even though he was a learned man and a great speaker. It's Jesus Christ who is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30, he says that Jesus is our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. And he sums it all together in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What Paul does when he's talking about these teachers, he never slams these teachers. He never says Apollos and Cephas, they're, they're nothing. He never slams those teachers. At the same time, he never exalts himself and says, yeah, you should be following me. What does he do? He goes straight to Jesus. And he says, the point is that you worship and pursue and chase after your relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's another great truth to remember. The first step to church unity and church health is that we pursue Jesus Christ and we don't get things twisted. We keep our eyes fixed on Christ. That's what Hebrews 12, 2 says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. In other words, he's saying, keep the focal point Jesus and not all these peripheral issues. That's the mistake the Corinthians made. Keep your eyes on Jesus, not the periphery. Back when I played basketball, unfortunately, I had to play defense. I much preferred offense. But I did have to play defense, and I would play defense. And since I was a guard, I was typically guarding the person that had the ball the most of the time. 
So when I'm guarding the guy with the ball, it's important to keep my focus on that person, particularly the kind of the midsection. If you start looking at his feet or the ball or his head, you're going to kind of get juked and get beat. So you kind of have to focus on the midsection. But while I would focus on the person I'm defending, I've got peripheral vision. So through the peripheral vision, you're able to see everything that's kind of going on around you. So I'm able to see if somebody's going to come set a pick. Or I'm able to see if somebody beats the man who's going to cut to the basket so I can defend. Or I can see if somebody's out there in the open. I, I can see all this stuff, but I'm focused on this guy. Because as soon as I shift my focus onto something else, and he's no longer my focus, he beats me, and I'm sitting on the bench. So my focus is here, and my peripheral vision is everything else. What the Corinthians had done is they had taken their focus off of Jesus. They had put their focus on gifts and teachers and all this peripheral stuff. And because of that, they lost sight of what's happened here and they got beat. And division happens and disunity happens and quarreling happens and fighting happens. So what Paul is really trying to tell us right here is we have to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. Here's another truth for you this morning. When you put anything or anyone on the pedestal other than Jesus, you're going to get messed up. You're going to get off track. When you allow peripheral issues to take precedence over the primary purpose, you're going to mess stuff up. That's true in your own life. But that's true with us as a church. The moment we as River Fellowship take our eyes off of pursuing Jesus and we get wrapped up in peripheral things, whether it's theological issues or practice issues, whatever it is, if we get twisted, that's the moment that we start to mess up what God's doing here. So it's important that our very first passion point is that we pursue Jesus first and foremost. That bleeds into a second passion point, and that is to practice humility. I think the issues of them, of the teachers and the gifts, I think the real issue there was an issue of self. I think it was all about self-promotion. I think it was a backdoor way to get people to look at themselves and, and have spiritual pride because they could say, hey, I studied under so-and-so. Because it was a great honor for a, in, in the Greek world for a philosopher or a teacher to ask you to, to be a disciple of theirs. That was a great honor. In the Jewish culture, to have a rabbi or a teacher say, hey, sit under me as a disciple, that was a great honor. So I think it was all about, hey, I studied under so-and-so. It was to look at me, aren't I important? Aren't I significant? Or I've got this gift of tongues, but it's the spiritual gift, so aren't I important? So everything they're doing really is throwing it back at themselves where they can make themselves look holy and spiritual, it's all about spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride. Spiritual arrogance is birthed from and creates a spirit of competition and comparison. Anytime you start getting prideful spiritually, what's taking place is a spirit of comparison and competition. That's what they're doing. You studied under this person? Oh, well, I studied under this person. You have this gift? Well, I have this gift. And it's all about comparing one another to one another, competing against 
one another. We could make it in our vernacular maybe today. How many people did you lead to Christ this week? Oh, you led somebody to Christ this week? I led three people to Christ this week. Oh, really? Well, I led five people to Christ this week. Hey, I had a 15-minute quiet time this morning. Good, I had a 30-minute quiet time. Oh, yeah? Well, I had an hour quiet time. Beat that. I memorized a verse this week. I memorized a whole chapter this week. I memorized a whole book. And it's just this, this spirit of competition and comparison. It all breeds from spiritual pride and spiritual arrogance. What Paul's calling us to is to practice humility. I'm reading this in the scripture now. This isn't scripture. It's just my mind. But I think what's taking place in the Corinthian church is a lot of peacocking, a lot of roostering, a lot of strutting of how significant and how cool and how holy I am. And I think Paul's saying, man, you guys, you've, just, you've missed it. You got your heart on selling the wrong things. You're passionate about the wrong things. And it's, it's messing everything. He brings us back. Practice humility. Philippians 2, 3, passage that I, I cite a lot now, trying to get it in my spirit, is do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. That's what Paul's preaching here. He, he models this. He expresses this in chapter 15, verse 9. Paul says, for I'm the least of the apostles. And I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. Most of us would look at Paul and say, man, you're the greatest of apostles. Paul says, no, I'm the least. And the only reason I'm anything, he says in verse 10, is by the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul understood that the only reason he's anything is because of the grace of God. He understood the grace of God. To combat the temptation of spiritual arrogance and spiritual pride, we've got to practice humility. And true humility comes when we understand grace. But they're connected. These passion points are connected because pursuing Jesus will help us practice humility because it keeps our eyes on him instead of on ourselves. Here's the third passion point. That's to prioritize love. Paul tells us that in chapter 13. If you've ever been to any weddings, you've probably heard some portion of chapter 13 talked about and quoted in your wedding. He's talking about the concept of love. And again, in a very broad stroke, he's talking about prioritizing love. In chapter 13, verse 1, he says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels... But have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. He wraps it up in chapter 14, verse 1. He says, so follow the way of love. He addressed his tongues immediately just to get them back to saying, hey, you guys have messed up. He says, you can speak in tongues, but if you're not loving people, if you're not loving people, here's what they're hearing. That's all they're hearing. That was ridiculously obnoxious. <laughs> I saw a lot of people go, jump. 
If you don't love, that's all they're hearing, just a bunch of noise. How you treat people speaks much louder than what you say to people. How you treat people will be drowned out, or it will drown out how you speak to people. You can be the most gifted person in the world. You can be the greatest communicator in the world. You can be the greatest servant. It doesn't matter if you don't love. All they're hearing <laughs> is a bunch of noise. So he says prioritize love. And they're all connected. As you pursue Jesus as a passion, you're going to begin to practice humility and as you practice humility, that gives you the impetus now to prioritize love. So here's the deal. The Corinthians, full of disunity, division, worldliness, and godliness, they put the wrong things on the pedestal. And the reason is because they're passionate about the wrong thing. Paul's trying to pull us all back. I'm trying to pull us all back this morning to the real passion on the right thing. My prayer for you as an individual, for us as a church, is that we would have real passion for pursuing Jesus. That we would have real passion for practicing humility. And that we would have real passion for prioritizing love. Would you bow with me? Thanks for listening. We truly hope that you are blessed and encouraged. If you'd like to learn more about River Fellowship in Amarillo, Texas, go to rfamarillo.org.